Trade Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. Um, this is a nonprofit um, experiment in the conversations that we need to be having in a post-pandemic world. And it started from the inception based on the ideas around human transformation, digital transformation, and social impact. And I am your one of the co-creators uh, and co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge and the author of Decisive Intuition. And I want to introduce to you my other co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, we want to say a little bit about you and what has you excited about today's show. Absolutely, Rick. Thank you so much on this nice sunny day in London from the quarantine, uh, um, you know, um, office that I have or the, uh, the basement here. Uh, delighted to be on the show today and have um, our friend Anthony Woolley join us, who's going to take us through a, f- a phenomenal story of his career. Um, and it's an important one for me because I'm, as you know, one of the creators of StraightTalk.Live, but I'm also the co-founder of a business called Growth Enabler, uh, which is all about trying to disrupt, or should I say, educate the disruptors of tomorrow on how to revamp traditional business models. And um, I'm very excited about this one in particular because uh, financial services and fintech and that entire world is is rife for disruption, has been for a, a long time. And it's great to have a leader who's a practitioner and of course um, understands the, the theory behind financial models and technology. So uh, Rick, this one is gonna be a fun one, of course. So. Um, Back to you, and then let's uh, get into the core of the, the, the topic and the subject today. Excellent. Yeah, I'm very excited about this topic in particular. And if we think about it, so many of us out there, and a lot of you listening, are affected right now by the COVID situation, health-wise, maybe relocating and geographic uh, changes that were unexpected. There's also the financial implications. There's the economy that everyone is fretting about for good reason. And uh, we've never seen a greater, you know, job displacement, job loss, having to reshuffle on the fly, having to adapt in, in real time and, and really think creatively outside the box. Is what I'm doing actually serving me, my passions, my family, my situation? What needs to change? What do I need to start doing, stop doing and continue doing? How do I need to reset my career? And so that's exactly the heart of what we're going to get into today. And one of my favorite quotes uh, that we had in our show notes earlier is that, you know, when our back is against the wall is when we see our true character. Not always when things are going great, when, um, you know, our stock options have vested and we're, we're sitting pretty up there. Um, it's often when we are most challenged, we get to see what we're made of. That's some of the hidden upsides as a leader, uh, whether we're leading, you know, a, a, a huge corporation, a division, a department. It could be leading our family. It could be a community leadership, whatever ways that you might be leading out there. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about adversity today and, and the courage that it takes to overcome that. And I just wanted to show one slide really quick that we actually brought up in our first episode. And this is really the three zones of where we're usually operating from and see if you can recognize yourselves in one of these right now. The first one, of course, being a comfort zone. It's what's familiar. It's what we know. Uh, we don't have to think about it. It's what we do when we're in our, you know, our nine to five, waiting for the weekend. It's that kind of mentality of the status quo. And sometimes we all need to be here because sometimes we need to decompress. And it's actually okay to feel comfortable. Uh, but it can also, if we're there for too long, it can sacrifice our aliveness. And we stop taking risk. And we just stay with what's safe. And we don't actually aim for what's possible. And so that's really where this learning zone area is, is this area of growth, taking in new information. The key here is it's not always comfortable, yet it's alive. It's where I'm being stretched to my capacity. Um, this is where experimentation, innovation happens. It's the sweet spot. But there's another point I want to make here too, is we can actually overextend and go too far out and hit a place of what's called panic. And this is where we literally fight, flight, or freeze. It's usually the freeze option often. And it's where people will get burned out if they're too overextended for too long. And we actually physiologically stop taking in information when our system is, is overwhelmed, when our nervous system is completely fried. 
So this is where, how can we be open to uncertainty? And then when is it, we, we, then when do we reach our maximum and our limits? And so this is really a lot of the sweet spot that we're going to be talking today with our special guest, Anthony Woolley. And so I'm going to introduce you. So Anthony, welcome to our show, Straight Talk Live. Pleasure to be with you today. I'm also in a sunny London, a different part of London from Ash. Uh, but yeah, it's good to be with you. Excellent. And for the audience members who maybe haven't heard of you yet, uh, would you say just a little bit about your background and how you got to be here today in this conversation around fintech and, and what has you here? Sure. So what, uh, maybe 45 minutes just on my background, something like that. No, I'll give you <laughs> the uh, two, two <laughs> just, just very briefly. So uh, um, I would say as a child of the 80s, um, I grew up at a time of uh, home computers and uh, I think I'm an engineer by heart. So uh, always passionate about when I was a teenager, uh, these home computers, electronics, this sort of thing, uh, led into a vocational degree at uh, Warwick University. And then after that came into London. And uh, that was uh, the start of the 90s. And I think it's hard to get a perspective when you're that age, where you are relative to the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. Uh, you just sort of go with things. Um, but what I wasn't so tuned into is I was coming into London just a few years after the opening up of the financial markets. You know, Margaret Thatcher had had the big bang in London in 87 when uh, uh, the trade floors were opened up. And uh, really that set the background for my career coming through the 90s and, and into the uh, new millennium. Um, worked for, uh, initially after university, I was, I was uh, selling systems as a technical expert into various banks, insurance companies, et cetera. Um, and that led to a job in uh, Schroeder's when they had a merchant bank. Um, really following the design of a system that uh, we sold to them. I, I asked for a job basically to build it because uh, being an engineer at heart, I wanted to work on the implementation. Uh, and that really set, set a path. Um, that was a, uh, that was Schroeder's when they had a, a merchant bank. We know it as an asset manager now. Uh, but then in 2000, that was sold to Sanam Smith Barney, big US bond house. Mm -hmm. And you had all of this uh, going on in the industry at the time, a lot of consolidation around that time. And I found myself with, through various acquisitions, working for what we now know as City. And uh, it was there, probably, you know, there are different points in your career uh, that are pivotal. Uh, and I think by, by more luck than judgment, I got involved in uh, foreign exchange trading technology in um, 2002. And that was just at the time when, uh, you know, we'd had technology, we'd really gone through a first digital transformation uh, in terms of giving traders and salespeople and the, the, the tools to communicate for trade floors to talk um, to do their trading but this was really the start of using computers to uh, do this in a much uh, higher volume higher frequency and automated way to balance risk um, and uh, drive pricing in the market and so uh, as an engineer that was really exciting and through that whole period of time through uh, through say 2010 well through past the financial crisis really involved in uh, applying uh, leading edge technology on those trade floors. That led into bigger and bigger roles, right? You end up, you do a good job, you end up managing more and more people. Uh, and ultimately uh, became the uh, chief information officer at, uh, in the UK for Sotgen, the, the French bank, um, up until 2017. But in that role, engineer at heart, I was always involved and in interested strategically in uh, some of the forces that were driving change in financial services. And in many ways, you know, the, the industry had gone through this first wave of digital transformation in the trade floors in that part of financial services, but it hadn't transformed elsewhere. Um, and I think what's happened in the last five more years, I mean, we know it. If you're not in financial services, you still know, you know, there are not as many branches open as they were. You know, we're in a COVID crisis, so everybody's banking online, um, but also in wholesale banking, um, there's a whole new wave of digital transformation going on. And in that role, I got involved with the whole fintech ecosystem and a lot of the energy that's going in through startups and entrepreneurs uh, transforming that industry. Uh, and that led me into an innovation role there. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit because that was quite a big decision to make that move mm. uh, into an innovation role still within the big bank. I was sort of hedged. If you know about um, financial services, know about hedging risk. I think I was kind of uh, taking one step in the direction I wanted to go while still working for the big bank. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, it led to me taking the uh, big step and leaving the big organization 
Um, and today I invest in and work with a number of fintechs uh, and enjoying every minute of it. So uh, there you go. That, that, that was probably a five minute version, wasn't it? There we are. <laughs> Can you actually take us back to that one moment you just mentioned? Because I think that's really the core of this story in one way, where you have this very comfortable corporate job that you've worked so hard to achieve and have made so many inroads toward and um, the evolution of that that you've created. And then there's this other itch inside of you to do something different. And could you just tell us more about that area and tell us about that transformation? What does that take to hold that paradox, know the other world is there and you have maybe one foot in or a big toe in and how did that work for you? It's tough, right? I mean, I, you're, you're, I like your concentric rings. And I think what we're talking about is moving from a comfort zone into a learning zone, right? Mm. And uh, I know that I've always wanted to learn. I've always been passionate about uh, what's going on with technology and how that's, that's changing things. And I think it's fair to say, and I, I'm, I'm sure that there, you might have many listeners that can relate to this. You, you progress in your career, you, you, you have these experiences, and then at some point you're in a you're in a role where you're actually quite comfortable, right? The the mm. you you're doing a good job, you get paid paid well, um, you get up every day, and you you re you don't realise that you stop learning actually. Mm. Um, and then if you stop learning, what happens is then your passion starts to drop. Mm. And I think it's key that at every stage of your career you're doing something you're passionate about. That's really the uh, fastest route to success. Mm. And then you you seek out these new passions. For me, it was around. FinTech, I got heavily involved in uh, many will have heard, well, everybody's heard of Bitcoin, right? But uh, blockchain technology and new technologies, these technologies being applied to transforming financial services. And yet at the same time, the pressures on you are to stay in that comfort zone. You know, your family don't want you to, to, to upset the apple cart by changing your career too much. The organization's happy paying you to do what you're doing. And you're thinking, yes, but actually what I'm passionate about is somewhere slightly different. But it's, it's hard, right? You have commitments, you have overheads, you have all of these, these pressures that bear that, that, that hold you back from doing that. And I think it was, I, I held back from doing that for probably a number of years where you're sort of balancing those different priorities in your life. But I think ultimately, and uh, I think we were talking earlier, you, you know, this phrase golden handcuffs, I don't know if I like it or not, but there is a bit of that golden handcuffs, right? But uh, ultimately you have to, uh, I think ultimately you, you, you have to make that decision if you're, if you're, if you're driven by passion and what, what, what you do uh, to make the step to actually uh, work on what you really want to work on. And uh, it's scary, it's risky at the time, but uh, ultimately uh, it's certainly not, not a move that I regret at all. Mm. Last question I want to ask and then I want to turn, off, turn it to AF is around courage. How, how did you do that? Because for me, it takes a lot of courage when you have these golden handcuffs uh, and maybe in even a better way, you, you actually still enjoy what you do. You enjoy your, your culture, your people you're working with, all those things. Um, there's so many perks to the job. But as you say, there's points where you stop learning. I like how you said that, that when I stop learning, I stop feeling that passion at times. So how do, how do you do that? Like, wh how do you access that courageous step? Because I think that's where a lot of our listeners are getting stuck right now in this post-COVID in this post-pandemic context right now, where there is a lot of people feeling frozen or uncertain about what's next. Could you just speak to that a bit about how do you, what do you, how do you access courage? What does that mean to you? Okay. Um, well, it's, it, it is a, it is a challenge uh, and it is a balance, right? Um, I think, you know, even if it was five years ago, I probably wouldn't have had enough courage to make that move because of other things that are going on in your life children of a certain age that you know they the dependencies you have on you um and uh, but it's it's a balance and i think I, I i got to a point where there was this growing desire look i want to do something i want to be involved in this transformation of the industry more directly and um, but also you know in reality i was getting to a point i've got teenagers who can look after themselves now and uh, you know they're heading off to university and such like and these are relevant factors as well because it's not like you can you know, I wouldn't recommend necessarily a certain point of people's life just going, yeah, I'll go for it. And then you've got potentially fallout from that if you, if you do have a lot of commitment uh, in your life. But it's, it's, it was finding that balance. Uh, and I think ultimately, you know, there's also things that happen in your life. You know, I went through a, a health issue a few years back, which I won't expand on. But for everybody has these experiences in their life where you think, I've only got one life. Actually, you know, the, you, you, you know, if you don't do this, you, you will regret it. And I think it's having that perspective 
um, and, and ultimately you have to say, well, if, if I project forward 10 years and I haven't done this, will I regret it? And you think, yeah, you know, I, you know and that, that's it. It's trying try to get a, a strategic perspective on your broader career and life, I think, and recognizing the point at which if I stay in this comfort zone, not learning, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to grow in what I'm doing. And ultimately that won't lead you somewhere you want to go. Anthony, I wanted, to, I wanted to touch on a point that I can relate to personally when I came out of the corporate five years ago and um, decided not to go back in again, because I think that's, um, we need to touch on that too, of course. So one is having the courage to leave something that is steady and stable, personally and professionally. Uh, you know, you have other people to take care of as well when you're a leader or a a provider in your family and it's a tough decision to make when things are going relatively well and to shake the apple tree and to have the courage and the strength to do that and the foresight simply because that feeds back into this deeper sense of purpose that uh, you have to deal with yourself personally and then be able to articulate or convince others um, of down the line so one part is leaving the corporate the other part is uh, finding something that's interesting and exciting enough intellectually rewarding financially rewarding at some point to keep you in that game one is leaving the other is staying because of course for someone like yourself who's who's an experienced operator and leader there's no doubt in my mind you'd have offers and people saying well, well why don't you come into my bank or yeah. my organization and so talk us through talk us through what's going on in your mind what what have been the trigger events to keep you going and I accept that it's probably not, uh, you need more passage of time, but what is keeping you focused on fintech? What is keeping you focused on startups or investing? And this new kind of life that you've built for yourself, because uh, by the way, the, the core reason and the driver of this question is that a lot of people who are gonna listen to this now in live session and in the replay will be executives in large enterprises. They're probably looking at you, maybe the, your counterparts in other jobs in other banks, and they're thinking, well, do I have to have a life-changing event for me to go do the things that I really want to do? It's a hard one, and I, there's no real sort of clear-cut answer. But what were the trigger events, or what are the trigger events, should I say, that are keeping you in the role right now? What is keeping you focused on staying in fintech? Okay, so uh, maybe I'll come on to this two parts to that. I think the first thing is the leaving, right? And then there's the staying. Um, one thing I would say about uh, as you transition into a, a new space is, um, you know, I was very actively managing that in terms of first and foremost, having a, a plan and a vision of where I wanted to be, right? Um, and that came a few years ago, actually, was the recognition that I'm in a comfort zone the recognition actually that I want to be somewhere else um, in terms of what I'm engaged with and the project type of projects I'm engaged with. So actually I started executing that from within the comfort zone, right? Mm. For want of a better word, which is actually you, you, you often in a large organization, you will have opportunities to explore the things that you're more interested in. And that starts you on a journey as opposed to saying, well, I'm, you know, I want to change everything I want to do tomorrow. And then you just, you just, jump and do something different you can do that um you know i did it in a more risk managed way if if you might like so um i was already getting involved in a vision i had around um changing financial services getting involved in the some of the the the, the, the initiatives where that was happening uh, within that organization uh and starting to actively work with these companies entrepreneurs mentoring them supporting them um, and that made it a easier, smoother transition, reduce the risk. And actually by reducing the risk, it then makes it easier for you to stay once you've transitioned. Um, yeah, fair point. but, uh, it, it's, um, since, since I come out of, you know, I'm fortunate to, to, to be working with, um, you know, a, a, a small number of, uh, fantastic fintechs. Um, and, uh, I was working with those in, in my previous role, right. But in a different capacity. So. Uh, that that helped uh, the transition out and um, to, to stay I don't I'm enjoying it too much I think uh, that mm -hmm. that's the thing right then it becomes a bit addictive um, you know I I, I, know, I remember a world a few years back where 
my diary, the meetings in my diary were not mine, right? You, 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 you wake up early on a Monday morning, you look at your schedule and all right, actually maybe six of those meetings today are other people's, maybe one or two of them is mine. Uh, yeah. Now I wake up in the morning and the agenda is mine, right? Uh, and that's something that uh, I really enjoy. So um, the staying, I don't know. I haven't thought about um, returning now. Once, once, you, once you go and uh, you, you, you have this momentum, uh, it's not like I'm being kept there. I just want to be here. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because you touched on a very important point that I probably want to just um, expand on a little bit, which relates to the fact that if you are a senior executive and you want to make the leap out of a corporate um, or enterprise institution, whatever position you may be at, and let's imagine you are in the golden handcuff uh, situation or you're getting paid a really decent salary and you've got stock options and you've got to do what you've got to do for the family as well. I mean, those are, those are the real issues, right, that we're dealing with here. That's, that's the reason why people don't do certain things because they believe that they have some personal responsibilities that they have to take care of. And, and that's one part of it. The other part is how do you prepare for the exit? How do you prepare for the transition? And what you're saying, I think, I believe is best practice for now, which is start identifying those exciting ventures and companies and founders that you want to start to mentor or coach or work with. And the reason for that is, A, you, you're almost cross-pollinating, right? You're teaching them things, they're teaching you other things. You're learning about new business models. You're, you're grafting hard to educate them on traditional business models and uh, regulation and compliance and workability of that sort of stuff. And at the same point, uh, you are getting more familiar with the world that we call uncertain today, the uncharted waters. And of course, this is a perspective yeah. thing, right? This is when you're in the corporate, it's uncharted. But when you're in the waters, you're like, well, actually, this is my, this is my uh, usual. This is my normal. And so it's all about perspective. And it's all about it's the relativity around what you do when in, in, in what context. So in, in other words, what we're saying is if you're a senior executive, it could be a good idea for you to think about taking advisory board roles in startups, in fintechs, in insurtechs, in exciting companies now, whether they pay you or not. And you're doing that because you have the end in mind, or at least you have a direction in mind, which may be six months, a year, two years, whatever it may be. And I think it's a very important point to make because I have to tell you, I work with a number of very, um, you know, very influential leaders around the world. And as obvious as this may sound, many of those great executives are very busy from Monday to Saturday, working damn hard, leading organizations, complex organizations, and um, dealing with the politics, dealing with the uncertainty of an enterprise. COVID has just sort of amplified that. So they're, they're almost so consumed by that job and that role, they don't really have any time to think outside of that uh, domain. So I think it takes some inspiration and role models like yourself and others who've actually made the leap, but prepared themselves before they made that leap. So advisory board roles, if you're in a job right now, in a C-level job, to prepare, prepare for an exit or prepare for some level of optionality later on in your career is an extremely sensible thing to do. Would you agree? Yeah, I, totally, I would totally agree, yeah. And I think it's what it gives you is the optionality. I mean, we're, we're the two of us are talking from an experience where it was our desire, our uh, vision to work in this entrepreneurial environment or to work with uh, smaller startups, etc. That's not going to be for everybody, right? Um, for for many people, they will, what they want to keep themselves in in their learning zone within a large corporation, and that's that's great as well, right? Um, I think the taking these these type of roles, looking up from your your desk and the you know the full in tray, and taking a little bit of time to to work with uh, entrepreneurs, people who are energetic or visionary in what they do. Um, and you don't you underestimate sometimes the value you can bring to them due to your experiences that you have. Actually, if you do that, um, it will put you more into a, a learning zone. And that may inform you just in terms of your career within the, the large organization. It may not involve uh, exiting that organization. It may involve just steering the ship a little bit in a slightly different direction. But what it will do is it will stimulate and energize you and, and keep you more in that learning zone. So I would highly re recommend that irrespective of 
people's individual visions of where they they want to go do you think uh, one more question i know it's it's something that many will be thinking about uh, the last session we ran we uh, the last couple of sessions uh, this S, you know straight talk live sessions were around uh, the disruption that is ai and then of course higher education and we touched on you know the um, the concept of the MBA, whether it's an appreciating or a depreciating asset. And when we ran those sessions, this word elitism came up a few times. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that um, we're all um, part of this sort of uh, game, but I think you don't have to be financially independent or free to make the leap, right? Um, I think it's when you make up your mind that you want to pursue a, it's a life choice back to optionality. When you decide that I'm uncomfortable uh, living in extreme comfort, or you feel that you want to get comfortable with uncomfortable situations, whatever angle you might take, and you feel that your sense of purpose, your why, your, um, your environment and the kind of destiny that you set up for yourself if they're not aligned, you, you have a responsibility to do something about it. So I just want to make this very clear that you don't have to be a successful C-level executive and earn loads of money to make the leap from one career to the other. You can do it in any avatar, in any incarnation. Uh, so just so it's not about just those who are super, super successful at the top of the ladder. You could be anywhere in the ladder. You, in fact, you can dismantle the ladder and still be ultra successful. Is, is, that, is that fair to say, Rick and, and, and Anthony, for both of you? Because we've, we've all done this, right? Yeah, well, one comment I'd make quickly is, uh, maybe I don't be biased, but I'd say in a way it's harder for people in their senior roles uh, to do it because of the momentum that you've built and the weight of expectation. And yeah. actually, you know, uh, you, you, you never quite become financially independent, do you? Because you, you create larger overheads for yourself. Um, so so uh, I would say maybe it's harder actually at the senior level, um, but uh, maybe that's just seeing it from, my, from where I'm sitting. Yeah, Rick. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a fair point that you have more to risk. You've accumulated more. It's harder to make that jump at that point. <clears throat> and I like, I like your emphasis, Af, and I think back to my life where, uh, you know, what have been the drivers of change for me? When have I made that leap myself? Because I've made that several times from an employee to a freelancer, um, and I remember this one position I had, um, I was an employee business coach and they changed their whole model where they went to independent contractors. And so we had to run our own businesses, you know, coaching other businesses. Yeah. And I remember clinging to my cubicle. I was one of the last coaches to make the jump because <laughs> I, I was so comfortable in my role. I loved it. <clears throat> and yet I knew on another level that I was just kind of phoning it in on some level too, that I wasn't alive as much as I wanted to be, even though I didn't want to think about creating a website and, and getting the account set up and all that other stuff you have to do around marketing and sales and some of the real challenges of starting a business. And I think that's an important piece here too, is it's not always sexy and glamorous. And there's so much stuff I had to learn on the fly that I had no clue about. Yeah. <clears throat> even though I've been coaching businesses, there was another level of sophistication I needed to have at that point for myself. And also with the latest technologies and platforms that are always changing. So for me, it's like making that jump um, ended up being the best thing I ever did once I did. And I realized I'm an okay employee. I'm, I'm a good employee, but I'm a much better entrepreneur. Hmm. I'm better when my back is against the wall and I have to figure it out. There's something that's more alive for me that ignites and activates. And I, how I use my time is much more focused and more clear. And, how, and, and my decision-making that comes from that place. Um, versus when it's someone else's vision that I'm serving, even if I'm aligned, which is great. And I've been in that role where I've had executive vision that was incredible that I really believed in. I've had the other experience where I didn't believe in the vision or how it was being embodied, yeah. which is a whole other conversation. But the bottom line is when you get to be responsible for your own vision, there's something that is very beautiful about that around creating your own schedule, like you said, Anthony, but also being responsible for what you want to bring into the world and how to make that a a bigger impact with your, with your fingerprint, if you will. We got, we have, um, we usually do the questions at the end, but I think it's, it's a, it's an open conversation. So let's, let's bring up this interesting questions. Um, there's someone on the call who's 
essentially asking a very poignant question They're in the freelance world and it appears that they're an architect. So I, I'll, I'll send this over to you first, Anthony. So the question really is, you know, I'm a freelance um, architect right now um, and really interested in hearing um, Anthony's perspective on, you know, how can, how can I find a startup or startups to get involved with um, in the first place? I've not done it before. What, what should I be thinking about? So what would you say to, to um, the gentleman who's asked the question? Okay, well, I'm more familiar with the fintech sector than, than what's going on uh, in architecture, but I think some of the, um, the, 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 the environment, the ecosystems around startups, uh, what, what I would say is startups are very efficient with their resources and their time. And they're also extremely good at finding help where, the, they, can, uh, where, where they can seek it out. Uh, in the context that they rarely have money, right? I remember actually, it's uh, I was I was talking to a, a, a colleague at another bank actually who mentored fintech startups, and uh, when he spoke to the startups who were often trying to sell to banks, he would always the first thing he'd say to them is, "What you've got to remember is these banks have unlimited time and unlimited money, and you have neither." And uh, it's a bit of an exaggeration because banks don't feel like that really. <laughs> but the the point was that the, the startups are very efficient and with their resources. And I can tell you one thing that they will quickly take is, is help where, where it's offered. Um, and I think that the starting point, I think, uh, you know, you said it earlier is when you're, when you're in a job, in a role, um, you, if you can just carve out a little bit of time and contribute it to, to the startup ecosystem, it will pay you back. Um, so I think it's not so hard to find, find the startups per se, question is how do you engage with them and there are lots of vehicles around accelerators etc but I think it's when you're there with an experience if you've got a particular skill or expertise that you think can add value it's just offering yourself maybe as an, a mentor uh, in conversations with with these companies and and they they will bite your right arm off um, mm -hmm. and then you'll be careful how much time they take but I think you, you have to do that on a, like a pro bono basis initially to get yourself engaged with the ecosystem. Once you're engaged with the ecosystem, that will open up different uh, opportunities, working with different companies uh, and, and, and will lead to, uh, to, to other places and uh, ultimately one that might, might have some money. Um, but uh, so I, I think it's, you know, the, the startups you, you can find, we talked separately about how you find it, but it's, it's that offering that capability and giving a bit of your time. Um, and then that, that will pay back dividends, I would say. Anthony, Wait, I really, Rick, sorry, I was going to say, Rick, do you want to, do you want to add to that? In yeah, terms just, of, just really briefly, yeah. it's, it's the, I think Anthony, you're right. You're spot on. It's those four words. How can I help? How can I help? And the, the more that you genuinely offer that to those around you in your space, uh, this is from Raju who asked the question, um, that's going to open doors. And, and who knows what kind of connections that leads to, but when that genuine uh, curiosity and that opening is offered, as Anthony is saying, people are going to jump on that, um, especially when they can feel that place you're coming from. So I think that attitude is really the way to network and to get to know your space even more and in, in the disruptors in your space that you might want to partner with, procure or invest with. So, <laughs> and on that note, um, Af, I know you have tremendous experience at Growth Enabler around the startup space. Do you have anything that you want to share about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And thanks for that, that uh, little plug in there. And um, yeah, I, what I would say really is um, more specifically around expertise. So in this case, you know, um, Roger, I think the question you asked was related to the fact that you're an architect. Um, so I assume you're a technical architect of some sort. And I think if I think about fintechs, because we're talking about fintechs today, uh, fintechs generally, if the business has been created, even if it was um, six months old, it generally tends to have some sort of a person who is a technical co-founder. Uh, not always, but often. And if that person isn't a co-founder, then the founder who set up the business is seeking a technical co-founder of some sort. So if you're an architect, you almost need to start to position yourself as someone who has a core expertise in an industry and or set of technologies or a programming language uh, in even, even something like Python, which is um, very hot and popular these days, or as we make our segue into blockchain or distributed um, ledger technology, these are these are new technologies that are um, you know game changers in the way uh, banks are going to operate now and in the future, and how fintechs are getting built. So, mm -hmm. if you have skill set and expertise in blockchain, DLT, 
Python, um, other languages, or you understand cloud extremely well and have played that game well and architected in these kind of agile sprint-based environments, then you've got a great green tick there. And, and I think it's important to get that very clear. I'm sure you have, but I would just add that point as a, a technical person trying to plug into a FinTech, uh, understand what the technical capabilities are of that FinTech before you go plug in, because perhaps they already have tons of capability. Um, the only curveball here is if you, if you haven't got business, a business dynamic to you, you need to build that over the COVID period. So architects are great and they're fantastic. Um, there are many architects out there, so you've got to differentiate yourself. And if you've got a business acumen or, you know, you, you're, you're a, you, know, you have business experience, even if you built your own startup at some point, or you're great at trading, or you have an online Amazon marketplace shop, or anything for that matter that is related to digital, you'd be surprised how valuable that experience is now, um, uh, you know, more than ever before. So that's the, the bit I would add for, to the question. Hope that helps. Brilliant. You know, this is actually a really good segue to, I think, the third uh, leg of our trifecta around social impact. And so, Anthony, I'd really love to steer the conversation in that direction now. You are on the, you know, you are participating in some of the leading edge technologies of fintech, blockchain, uh, crypto, et cetera. I would love to hear your perspective right now from this pandemic experience that we've been having. What do you see as being exposed, some of the infrastructures that are falling apart, what are you seeing on the leading edge of where things are moving toward uh, that would be helpful to hear just from your vantage point? Yeah, and in fact, um, interesting, I mean, the, the whole uh, experience of COVID, I mean, it, it is such a terrible uh, crisis. And, you know, going into it, nobody expected it. And, and going into this, the, the priority of all governments, rightly, was the, the health of their nations, right? Um, and we all locked down and then everything stopped, right? Uh, actually, I had, I won't distract the conversation, but I did have COVID for three weeks. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that kind of uh, laid me out. And then I came out of the other side of that. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what I think, you know, when I, I don't know, maybe in um, uh, April, late April, you, you suddenly saw that people were starting to realize that, okay, we got this massive health crisis, but also we're going to have a massive uh, emergent economic crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the fintechs that I was working with in, in, in particular, and had found that, you know, they got into this crisis, everything shut down, everything had stopped, you know, conversations they were having with big banks um, had stopped, etc. And um, it's a company, Onera, that focused on uh, uh, the new emergent space of digital securities. Um, and, uh, but what we found was that, um, you know, people were starting to realize that there is a massive economic crisis here. Um, and moreover, that we are going to come through this crisis with hundreds of thousands of companies that are fundamentally sound that are suddenly under financial stress. So this is unique. This has never, this has never happened in any uh, recordable history that, you know, companies that have been profitable, they trade well, they had a strong future and now they need financing. Mm -hmm. And I think with this FinTech, we, we tuned into that. Um, and that had that the, the founder wrote an article, which went a bit viral on a, uh, uh, wrote it on Medium, went a bit viral on, on LinkedIn, and it sort of hit a nerve. And this company has managed to mobilize, um, in a relatively short order, a lot of the largest banks, um, exchanges, and fintechs, and, and bring those together to say, well, how can we help these companies? These are basically private companies who need financing coming out of the crisis. And that's leading into a whole uh, industry initiative um, to build a network for what we call digital security. So this is where companies can actually raise money, um, find investors on a large global network. Whereas at the moment, mm -hmm. private companies raising money, it's very hard to find uh, the investors. It's very opaque. It's manual. All of these, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. And uh, there was a recognition in industry, well, maybe this is the time the financial services industry could step up and implement such a network to help these private companies. If you're a big public company, you trade on stock exchanges, you've got uh, much more liquid access to finance. If you're a private company, not talking about the very small ones, but large ones, they might be worth a billion uh, dollars, but they, they still can't find that financing. Hmm. The reason I tell that story is because you can see how in a, in a crisis, and this is where the agility and the entrepreneurship comes in, is understanding, getting a perspective and where you are and what the need is. 
uh, and there's a real need out there at the moment. And I think um, that's that's what's been keeping me busy uh, the the last six weeks, spending more time on that than than anything else at the moment. Um, because there is a real opportunity now to help our economies coming coming out of this crisis. But this is this is something I wouldn't have imagined doing uh, two months ago, right? And do you, uh, Anthony, if you could touch on that, because that's interesting, because, uh, you know, uh, people need money to keep their dreams alive and for the businesses to operate as going concerns. And we are in extraordinary um, circumstances and absolutely peculiar time. Uh, talk us through, as, as simply as you can, this whole thing about blockchain, right? And yes, it's mm. been debated and discussed and everyone's talked about blockchain. Where do you see it being most relevant in the context of your background and your role? Because you've implemented technology as well. So what is this mm. thing, blockchain? And how do you see it playing out in a post-COVID world? Do you think it's going to increase in popularity? Do you think it's going to reduce? It's indifferent. Uh, what is your viewpoint on this? Yeah, okay. So this is a favorite topic and it's one that you have to navigate carefully because it's very complicated and I don't want to confuse people. But there's a couple of interesting things. There's, there's blockchain is the technology that made Bitcoin possible. And Bitcoin and the technology together are quite a feat of, of engineering and cryptography, etc. cetera. Uh, and it achieves this thing where you can actually transfer value from one person to another without an intermediary. Um, also, Bitcoin came about in 2009 in the wake of the financial crisis and also the timing wise, maybe a response to saying, well, what is financial services? What does value mean? What does money mean? You know, where is all this going? Right. Um, and that but that technology, in order to do that, in order to be able to say, I've got a cryptocurrency and I can transfer it to you without an intermediary, I can transfer value, not just data is very powerful. And that technology can be then repurposed for different use cases. And there are many, many use cases for this. Um, but what we see happening, and I'll take the example of uh, digital securities. Um, at the moment, you know, if you're a, if you're a company uh, and you want to issue shares, somebody has to keep uh, a register of those shares, right? On, on a, uh, you, you have a table. Um, and these, these uh, are still kept in spreadsheets and somebody has to be, keep your, your, your register and understand who owns which shares in your company, etc. You can take blockchain technology and apply it to that and actually record those cap tables, as we call them, these, these holdings of these companies on a network in a way that they cannot be changed or, or altered. And this is, this is the clever thing. It's true with Bitcoin that nobody can alter your Bitcoin or take it away. Um, it's true if you take this blockchain technology and apply it to problems such as this, um, we can provide a network where uh, companies can issue stock directly on a network and people can receive payment instantaneously uh, for that uh, in a way that it's, it's immutable, it's unchangeable, that record's there and the network understanding keeps track of who owns what at all times without there having to be this big central intermediary looking after all of those uh, shareholder registers, etc. So. Um, and it can be applied to many other use cases in, in trade finance, with supply chains, uh, tracking goods. There's, there's, there's lots and lots of use cases, but it's, it's, it's really powerful, the concept of a technology that enables you to transfer value, not just data. Keep that mm. recorded, keep it immutable and notarized in, a, in an electronic way if you want. Um, mm. And so that's what I'm immersed in with a number of the fintechs I'm involved with at the moment. And that has the ability to really trans take financial services through a new level of transformation uh, in terms of how companies raise finance and then how that's traded afterwards. The whole thing can be automated. Uh, and so this also enables a, a capability where private companies can get some of the benefit of what the public companies have, where you and I can buy and sell Apple shares. Uh, well, it will be much easier in the future to buy and sell shares in smaller companies that are maybe less liquid in a network where you can reach investors all over the world. Whereas today, you know, I mean, we were talking the other day, you can have a startup with a great idea in uh, Silicon Valley on the West Coast, uh, raise, a, raise maybe $10 million for an idea. And yet in, in Europe, you could have a, a company that already has revenues behind it, great idea, et cetera, that can't raise 100,000. And there's something there about access to investors. And mm -hmm. this technology blockchain has the ability to create a global network to bring 
uh, companies and investors together. And uh, so that, that could be transformative and it can help, help the backbone of our economy, I think, uh, emerge from this crisis. It's a great example. That's a great example. And I, I know the last point you made in particular, I think I can re resonate with that just because of the startup economy that we're plugged into. I think for a long time, um, and you know, Rick sits in one part of the world in the United States, especially in, in the Valley or close to the Valley, that is almost the um, epicenter of the startup economy. It's where it all started and you have the big names and, you know, um, coming out of that, that particular economy. And in Europe, I think we've tried our best to sort of emulate that. We've done a pretty decent job. Our history, however, the kind of people we are and how we look at risk and how we make decisions and how we're dependent on relationships and, and so on uh, is an inhibitor sometimes in terms of getting access to money really quickly. You know, that sort, that sort of aspiration that we, we want to get, we want to realize. And I think if blockchain can help the best companies in the world, no matter where they sit, whether it's Beijing, Bangalore, London, Paris, Munich, whatever it may be, and you can connect uh, the, the best businesses, most disruptive businesses with money that can help them realize the potential of that business. And that business doesn't have to be, uh, you know, about trade. It can also be about doing good work for society. I mean, charities, not-for-profits. We're a not-for-profit. Yep. You think about what we're doing, you know, we're a media not-for-profit if you want to put us into a category. And we're actually, you know, like every other company, would love to jump onto the blockchain to, to democratize and almost disintermediate all of the blockers right now. You've got to almost go through person to person to person to go in and get access to that money that will help you realize your dream. So um, that's a fantastic way of putting it. So, I mean, I, I think blockchain will open up money markets, will open up access to finance if implemented really quickly in the right way, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And it simplifies, you know, all of the complexity around legal and regulatory requirements yeah. and the paperwork. And, you know, as you as entrepreneurs will know this, trying to raise financing, et cetera, you know, they come with, it all comes with its own set of lawyers and different jurisdictions, et cetera. It can create a global network that harmonizes that and you, it becomes like a, you know, you can say, well, I need to comply with this bit of regulation in this jurisdiction to raise this money. But if all of the network manages that for you, it all yep. becomes a lot easier. And uh, it's as we think about it, it's quite surprising that that network doesn't exist today, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know it, right? The, the money, the, you know, the money is out there in different parts of the world. Uh, and the companies more now than ever coming out of this crisis need financing. Mm -hmm. um, we just got to bring the two together. And right now we don't have a global infrastructure to do that. We have it for multi-billion dollar companies listed on international stock exchanges, but we don't have it for the large majority of companies that form the backbone of our economies, right? Yeah, I think you're hitting one of the key pieces that's getting exposed right now in our current climate is lack of distribution. And whether yeah. we're talking about finances, medical supplies, food, mm. um, all the ways that we're lacking distribution channels and supply chain channels that are broken, whether it's country to country or within countries, uh, that's been pretty exposed. So that's exciting to hear ways that technology can serve distribution in a network that can be more adaptive in, in, to the needs of the moment and the needs of the populations. Yes, indeed. So this is a good time to also uh, remind our audience, now's a good time to ask questions. So if you're listening on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or just live on Zoom here on your uh, registration link, put in your questions in the chat box or live and we'll, we'll cherry pick the best ones and get those answered by Anthony and the team here. Um, I'll, I'll kick it off. I have a question for you, Anthony, that's now burning for me from hearing you. Um, if and when we adopt di a digital currency in our coming times, I think it's a matter of when, not if, personally, uh, from what yeah. I can see, you're going to know better than I do. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective, in adopting a digital currency nationally or, or globally, however that ends up looking, what do you see are the advantages and also some of your concerns in regards to that? Yeah, well, wow, there's a question. So, so yes, um, I mean, what's quite interesting, you know, when uh, the, these uh, public cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin came out back in 2009, actually it's a long time ago now, and back then um, we were all carrying loads of cash in our pocket, right? And, um, you know, we buy everything with cash in bars and shops, um, etc. But actually in the intervening period, in many societies, we've actually already become cashless uh, societies. I know it's happening in different places, pace in different jurisdictions, um, but in the UK, we don't really use cash anymore. 
Um, and so in a way you already have a form of electronic cash. Because, so the question is what is the benefit of having um, maybe a, a cryptocurrency as electronic cash as, as you're um, describing it. Um, where it is very valuable is in the transfer of value for payment uh, in a secure way. So that, um, uh, and in, in um, financial services in wholesale banking, this is really important from a risk point of view uh, mm. when you're moving money between institutions and so on and so forth. Uh, at the moment, you know, we have a very complex infrastructure um, which costs many billions across the industry to do things we call clearing and settlement and buying and selling shares and equity and debt, et cetera. Um, I think where this will have the biggest impact is what not that you, you feel you're using a form of a Bitcoin in a shop where it will have the biggest impact, first of all, um, mm. is actually within financial services in terms of making uh, when you buy or sell a stock or uh, issue a bond or whatever, that the payment for that happens instantaneously and those two uh, exchanges legs cannot be broken apart um, and they cannot be misinterpreted um, and what this means is uh, in the global world of finance uh, this electronic cash uh, will start flowing freely in exchange for all of these um, uh, financial products and services and that won't be very visible on the street per se but it will transform and change the risk and make uh, the way that financial transactions uh, happen uh, very fast in real time that reduces systemic risk it reduces risk if companies go bust or if there's another financial crisis so it has a big impact there um, I think when people think about cryptocurrencies they think about it in terms of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, transfer of value around the world where maybe I can transfer money from my smartphone to your smartphone uh, without it going through the banking system now, at the moment, I can, I can do that instantaneously for you, but it, it goes in real time through a banking system the other side. And um, so the question is, what's the value of doing that without it going through a banking system? But that then raises much bigger questions around the nature of money and the nature of society. You know, uh, the, the, um, without getting into to, to, to macroeconomics or macro politics, you know, at the end of the day, most citizens are law-abiding citizens in a country. Mm -hmm. uh, they pay their taxes, the government keeps them safe, they build hospitals, they have roads, etc. And actually these questions are tied up with some of these more larger societal questions to a certain mm -hmm. extent, which is, yes, we can, we'll have cryptocurrencies, but there also still needs to be a way for government to collect their taxes um, mm -hmm. and to pay for infrastructure and so on and so forth. So maybe I've veered into a an area that uh, gets people excited if they're libertarians or if they got strong views in different directions. But I think, you know, these electronic, you could say electronic cash is already here. Mm -hmm. um, it, it will continue to come in a more fluid way and a more democratized way that you're not dependent on so many institutions and complex financial systems to process this. But these electronic cash will make things, reduce the risk in financial services, make transactions more predictable and, and reliable. And that will all be a good good thing. There you are. I don't know how well I answered that question. There was a big question actually. I'm trying to answer it in a way that everybody listening will understand. Yeah, that really sheds some light, I think, on some of the positives. And I'd also like to hear the other side too. What are some of your chief concerns about going digital with or a cashless-based society? Uh, anything that you're already on the fringes of of you know thinking about who might be exploited, how does how could that work, et cetera? Yeah, I think um, it's as simple as making sure that individuals are protected, that they're not defrauded, um, that, um, you know, parties are honest, uh, that people aren't, aren't using mechanisms to avoid taxes, um, or that it's supporting illegal activities, etc. When you get into this peer-to-peer, -peer, ultimately there is a societal responsibility to make sure that people are behaving well. Um, in, in the way that they, they conduct themselves, carry out transactions, et cetera. So I think there are, you know, there are risks with all of these technologies. I think, you know, and, and sometimes the, the risk is that the technologies are so transformative so fast that society can't keep up. And that, that's where you get the pressure and people are saying, well, what does it mean to have cryptocurrencies and, uh, and these sorts of things? But I think that um, it's making sure that as these things come in, that it's in a way that is, is not disruptive to general law and order uh, and the way that our societies work. And so the risks are around things like tax and crime and protecting 
uh, individuals and investors. You know, I mean, my 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 wife earlier today got a text saying, um, your you know your Revolut account has been suspended. Right, click here to um, to reactivate it. Obviously, a fraudulent text. Right, looks very genuine. You know, this is this is the world we're in, and I think what we could be careful of is is protecting people who are not in, informed or tuned into these things so that they're not losing their life savings mm. and that they are looking after their uh, their wealth so okay i had a I, I don't know if any questions have come through rick i had a question um for you, anthony which relates to going back to the human transformation piece um you talked a lot about blockchain and you're a technologist so you've sort of grown up in technology there's this one piece around intellectual stimulation right that's important uh, in parallel with the financial needs and various other things. It appears to me that the passion uh, that you're exuding here and how your eyes lit up when you were talking about you know, digital securities and the disintermediation and democratization of, of um, payments, for example, to some extent, um, is one part of this is about, again, it's the transition piece that I'm referring back to. I guess one part of this is when you do something new or you're resetting your career, or you decide to do a reset of some sort. And we talk a lot about, Rick and I talk a lot about the great reset, uh, which we think uh, COVID has catalyzed to some extent. Uh, I guess what you're saying is it's not just about your sense of purpose and whatever that may be at that point. It's about you working out why you do what you do and intellectual growth and personal growth, learning new things, uh, you know, mm -hmm. digging deep into... Uh, the core of why something happens the way it happens, the interconnectedness of things. We talk a lot about systems thinking on this show as well. And in fact, we've got speakers coming on who are going to be discussing that in a lot more detail. I found technologists and IT leaders to be pretty equipped and almost masters of systems thinking because they have to run large, complex programs. And I, mm. what I'm sensing from what you're saying is for the CIOs and IT leaders and business leaders out there who, who want to make that change, who want to to transition, you've got to think about what you're transitioning into intellectually as well. I mean, are you excited yeah. about blockchain? Are you excited, excited about robotics? Are you excited about space travel? Are you excited about climate change and human transformation related to that or social transformation? And those are the issues that um, actually help you wake up in the morning and be super stimulated. I mean, one of the reasons why Rick and I set this up is because intellectually, it's an incredible platform for us to learn from people like yourself and reinforce and enrich our thought process. Uh, after all, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. You know, when you look back at your life, it's not just about, you know, the great jobs and the travel and all of those good things. It's about the impact of the dent that you've made in, in society uh, around you. So uh, long, we, uh, long may we continue to make those dents. And um, my question to you, probably the last one is, what, is, what are the one or two things or maybe more that you want to really openly and frankly say to your counterparts who are executives in large organizations and horses for courses. And I understand that, but what would you say to them right now? What can they do if they're in that conundrum, that situation where they're like, should I leave? No, I should go into a job or it's better. What the family say, the kids need that. I need to pay for private school. What, what are you saying to them? What, what is, what advice can you give them? Okay. Um, so I think, you know, for any executive in um, a large organization has probably got there because they have a measure of strategic thinking capability, right? They, they have the ability to uh, see the bigger picture um, and they're juggling all of these risks uh, at a time. But it's, it's, it's having a plan and a compass and, and, and you know, it's important to be passionate uh, about what you're doing. And if you're starting to get into that comfort zone, you've left the learning zone. Um, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't recommend just sort of throwing it and jumping, right, because of all of the risks that, that it's carried with it. So I think, and we talked about it earlier, I think it, it's having a plan, having a strategy about what direction you want to get in, but then it's acting today. But the acting today, and I, I like your recommendation earlier, it's taking a bit of time out of your diary every week and doing something. It may be in, in our case, it may be mentoring fintechs, um, but it may be working on your corporate social responsibility program. You know, you may, you may be a CFO uh, who can find a few hours a, a week to work on the board of a charity and, and there's tremendous demand out of there around finance or 
or you work with not-for-profits or whatever and what you'll find is you'll get energy from that but also it can serve uh, it can help you uh, mobilize and start to make that change because otherwise what will happen is your the pressure will build up um, and then you're, you, you don't want to be in a situation where it's all changing all at once and there you may get yourself into, into trouble. So it is about understanding that you don't want to be exactly where you are right now, having a strategy and a, 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 a game plan for one of a better word, but starting to act now in the, in the safety of the environment that you're in, there's endless opportunities to get in, involved with different organizations to be re-stimulated. And that in of itself will lead to opportunities that you can't see right now. And that will help get you into the uh, new place. That is a fantastic note to end on, Anthony. Thank you so much for your perspective today, your engagement. And where can people find out more about you if they want to learn what you're up to today? I'm on, uh, I live on LinkedIn a lot. Uh, nowadays, especially in financial services, it's a real LinkedIn culture. Um, so uh, do reach out to me on, uh, on, on LinkedIn. You can see what I'm up to there. Uh, that's a good place to reach me. So please look for Anthony Woolley on LinkedIn. And uh, just a quick note on our show next week, we're going to be looking uh, at how do, you, how do we actually understand our neuroscience and how that unlocks transformation with Lisa Dion, the president of Synergetic Play Therapy Institute. And I've known her for 20 years. She's an incredible leader in the space at really getting into the technicalities. How does transformation actually work? How do you unlock yours? It's going to be a fascinating conversation. Same time next week. Thank you all very much for our episode today. Anthony, appreciate you being here. And F, same as always, thank you for co-hosting this amazing creation with me.